and the problem, and, and it goes back to, it goes back to honestly back to my childhood and and things like that. I at times, I have a I hate to say it like this, but some of the things that I've learned is I have abandonment issues, and and not that my parents weren't wonderful, great parents, but they were a lot older when I was born. And I was expected to be on my own from an early age. So, you know, at seven years old, I'm at home, you know, taking care of myself, you know, cooking breakfast, spending the day at home, you know, that type of thing, you know, being, you know, where as I, you know, the way the count, exactly, you know, I I had a job at 11 years old and school became a, not because I had to work. But I got to the point that I was so self-sufficient on myself that I felt like I needed to work so I didn't have to burden anybody else with it. And that's kind of that's kind of dictated my whole life. And with that, I felt like I never, because I was at home alone a lot of times, I didn't have that voice. I wasn't able to to tell people, this is how I feel. This is the things that are bothering me. This is the things that I need for me to be healthy. And I just internalize those things. So I feel like being able to do this and being able to get DJ's story out there also helps me externalize my issues. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. That's Robert Palmer the host of the Broken Systems Podcast, a podcast focused on bringing justice to those who deserve it, the people whose cases are derailed for a variety of reasons, whether it's tunnel vision, their socioeconomic backgrounds, their mental health, the neighborhood they live in, internal problems with law enforcement, or just plain laziness. Robert is not a journalist or a lawyer or a politician or a former FBI agent. But in his first season, Robert's podcast has led to a significant impact on bringing attention and putting pressure on law enforcement to solve a case in Georgia that was beset by law enforcement infighting. In this case, in a small northern Georgia county, it would have likely not have been solved without people like Robert and the sister of the victim. His podcast comes from a place of genuine compassion, curiosity, and a desire for the truth that some say is missing in the media and true crime, particularly among those who are simply trying to grab headlines, likes, views, and clicks. If you've not heard the Broken Systems podcast yet, I recommend you check it out. Robert is a true crime fan who is inspired to start his podcast after listening to another one where he was disappointed by how the victims and their families were treated. This led Robert to research cases of the lost and forgotten, the people whose socioeconomic status, race, addictions, mental illness, jobs, or simply the jurisdictions where they were harmed, almost guaranteed that they would not be a priority. These types of cases are the ones that range from the cases that some police call NHI, which means no humans involved, like drug dealers, sex workers, and others like missing and murdered Native American women in cases that the police just move on from due to a lack of resources. 
They also include cases where local and state politics, dysfunction in police departments, and corruption interfere with finding justice. They include cases that we talked about in our early episode with John Wesley Fountain, a former Chicago Tribune and New York Times reporter, which I would recommend you go back and listen to. Those are the cases where the media ignores things simply because of the color of an individual's skin or the neighborhood that they died in. Despite the missing and murdered white woman syndrome, a term sociologists use to describe the phenomenon of young, attractive, middle-class white women going missing and them getting a disproportionate amount of attention, especially on television. Even those cases can slip through the cracks of a broken system, as we've seen in the disappearance of 17-year-old Alyssa Turney in Phoenix, Arizona, where the police initially didn't investigate. The 2017 murders of Abby Williams and Libby Germain in Delphi, Indiana, where a critical interview from the first few days of the investigation was lost in the case file. Or simple whodunits like the case of Maddie Scott, a Canadian teenager who vanished from a campsite at Hogback Mountain. In Robert's first season, he tackles the 2016 case of Donald Edward Fickey, or DJ as he was called by his friends and family. DJ, who struggled with drug addiction, died in a drug house in Walker County, Georgia. His case was initially ruled a suicide, but Robert came across DJ's sister, Amanda Shirley, who had a very different story to tell, one that was corroborated by some of the investigators. DJ was murdered, they argued. Now, seven years later, in July of 2023, a man who is in that house named Marshall Payne, who is in a love triangle with DJ's wife, was charged with shooting him in cold blood. It's a story of infighting between local law enforcement and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and neglect because of DJ's drug addiction. And it may be a roadmap for how many missing, murdered, and otherwise harmed people who get lost in the criminal justice system can be found again. Robert was born and raised in Marietta, Georgia, where I spent my elementary and middle school years. At 14, Robert's family moved to Coleman, a mountain town on the geographic heart of Alabama. After high school, Robert enlisted in the Air Force and received his bachelor's degree in business. He bounced around in management jobs for a few years when he entered the corporate workforce, where he served as a senior vice president for operations for an Atlanta company that grew during this time from 44 to 500 employees. Soon after the company was sold, Robert took a position as the chief operating officer of another company. After some personal missteps, Robert decided to take a step back from the corporate ladder to focus on his mental health and family. And ultimately, he decided to start his own business, a story that I can relate to in almost every way. Today, we're going to talk about those cases and how to fix the system. Thank you for joining. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) I really appreciate you um, coming on. I am... You know, as you probably know, Robert, like the first time I was really exposed to you, you know, and got to hear sort of the full story of 
your podcast and the case of DJ Ficky that you covered was when you appeared on the prosecutor's podcast. And I was really, I was fascinated because, you know, I'm a person who cares, I think, deeply about the cases and the stories of people, whether it's in crime or something else that, that don't really get covered or they get lost and forgotten. And I had never heard about DJ, even though I follow Georgia news, I had never heard about DJ, even though I care deeply about mental health and substance abuse. And it just made me thought, think like one, thank God people like you are there to make sure we're hearing these, these stories and so I, I, I appreciate the fact that you're here and I'm really grateful that you're willing to come on. I appreciate that. It was, you know, it was, it was a little intimidating when you asked me because as I listened through, you know, your podcast and, and the people that have been on there, you know, just between Bob and Brett and Alice and, and, you know, just the different types of individuals you had, I'm like, Oh, why, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a guy from, you know, Marietta, Georgia, <laughs> with not, you know, that just decided to do something. And, and, you know, the podcast, it was something that I did for, not just for everybody. I did it for myself as well. You know, mm. as, as we talk about mental health, it, it's, it's a way for me to, it, it helps me. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, a lot of people can understand that, but, but being able to get on and, and research and look into it and, dive into the case. It, it really helped me get through some time. Oh, it's interesting you say that because I am, you know, people often ask me like, why do you, why do you write or why do you create things or why do you research things? And some of it is like, you know, it's, it's um, transformational, right? It takes me out of my day to day. It puts me in another world. Some of it is like the creative piece of it, but I do believe like, in my writing and my podcasting and even just my conversations, there's something very cathartic for me in this whole process, if that makes sense. And I, I, I think it's, you know, I, I don't think it's selfish. I think it's, that's something we can't lose sight of because when we are taking care of ourselves, that's when we're going to do, at least in my mind, maybe the best work in terms of helping people. Oh, for sure. And, and I know I, exa- I know exactly what you mean. It's very, it's, it's that way for me as well. So, uh, you know, I, you made that point that um, you're just this regular guy from Marietta, Georgia, which by the way, is how I see myself too. <laughs> <laughs> you're this regular guy from Marietta, Georgia. And I actually think that's one of the most powerful things about your story. You know, if DJ was waiting for a television station you know, he would have needed an anchor or producers or somebody who had worked at that, you know, or if it had been a, they'd landed journal constitution, it would have been somebody who went to journalism school or did all this training. But I actually think part of the power of podcasting is there are, you know, there are a few barriers to entry. So a regular person can get up and do something that really makes a difference in people's lives. And I actually think that's one of the most interesting things about that story. So I'm curious, like what, you know, in a way you probably, between you and his sister, you had way more impact than the journalist had on the case or the state investigators. I'm just curious about like, you know, 
what what brought you to that point to start a podcast and got you interested in it? And how, what's the journey to this case? So a little over a year, year and a half ago, I started listening. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, 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 if they're out there, I've probably listened to it. Some I've made it all the way through. Some I haven't. About a year and a half ago, I started listening to a podcast, and I'm not going to mention the name of it, but it really changed my outlook on on podcasting in a bad way because mm. of the way that the person is dealing with the case, individ, the individual case, how he treats the family, how he treats individuals, and the way that he was doing everything. I, I just it just floored me and and how much I guess disrespect for the victims, the victim's family and and things like that, it, it just floored me. So I was like, I, I started looking, I'm like, look, I need I can do this. I can do this better because because I care. And it it for me it's not I, I'm not here to make money. I'm not here to do it for any other reason than to tell a story, to get a story out there that somebody else hasn't heard. Or if they've heard it, they didn't hear the whole story. They only heard parts of it. Mm-hmm. So I started researching and, and you know, I came up with the name The Broken System in, in the aspect and, of- And uh, you came up with the name before you found the case, right? Before, yes, absolutely. Before I found the case. And I kind of had a, a, I had an outline of a way that I was going to do the podcast. I was going to, I was going to do this, you know, do these stories every week, do a different story every, you know, every other week or whatever. And I, I came across DJ's case and- when I did, it just kind of, I don't, you know, I don't want to say it, it kind of tugged on my heart in the point of, of this is something that it, it's out there and, and you can search, you know, you can search DJ Ficky and the podcast, any forum of podcast, and there's probably 20 to 30 podcasts that have been done on his story. And that's because Amanda did so much of, I, you know, she pushed it so hard and made sure to get his name out there. And to make sure that people didn't forget. And Amanda's his sister, right? His sister, correct, yes. But what they did was they took, you know, a really, a really big story in my mind and serialized it down to 45 minutes. You know, most of the podcasts that you look at that has his story in it talk about it for 30 or 40 minutes. And they just they hit on everything. And and as I looked at it, I I was like, okay, there's there's so much to this story that needs to be told. And, and it really showed me how, you know, when people see my podcast and, and someone told me in the beginning, they said, you know, people are going to look at your podcast and they're going to think you hate the police. They're going to think you hate, you know, the law. You're going to hate all of that stuff. And I'm like, it's actually not about that. I said, you know, it, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about people that are not treated fairly because of their their backgrounds, because of their health issues because of their drug addiction. And, and when I found DJ's case, it was like, okay, I've got to tell his story. And, and I, you know, I kind of say it, you know, and I've said it before, Amanda's the one that built the story. I just, um, I, I, I'm, I'm just a storyteller. I'm just getting his information out there. Let me tell you just something that you might find interesting just in terms of the impact on me. You know, I heard you talk about it. I was fascinated by it. I knew it was issues that I cared deeply about. So I was kind of looking at it from the outside. 
I got four to five episodes in and it struck me that everything DJ was going through, everything that he did that kind of led him onto that path that he was on, like it, it was, it was looking in the mirror. It felt like I was seeing a younger Jason Blair doing all the things that I had done walking. I mean, from the addiction to the relationship to being in the drug house to everything. And I just thought like, I felt an enormous amount of empathy, sympathy, but also grace because I mean, that, that could have been me. It, and it could that have been, was powerful. Yeah. And it could be, it could be any of us. And that's, that's the biggest point that I want to get across to everybody is, is there's so many people that look down their nose and say, oh, he, you know, he had a drug addiction. It was his fault. He shouldn't, you know, had he not done that, it wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been in that situation. And, and it, you know, every person is just one decision away from, from their life spiraling, honestly, just yeah. one. And it, some people are able to turn that around quickly. Some people have the support system to turn it around. Some people don't. And, you know, you never know when you're going to end up in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, part of what just kind of, I think, sticks out for me, too, in thinking about his story and thinking about, like, you know, some of the things that we've talked about, like... Um, you know, so a couple months ago, David Simon, who's the creator of The Wire and the creator of the TV show Homicide Life on the Streets, he was a University of Maryland Diamondback, which is our daily newspaper editor before I was there. And David wrote this tweet that caught my attention, and it was about how the murder rate had dropped in uh, or no, the murder, um, the closure rate on homicides had dropped to 13%. And he wrote, like, the last line of his tweet was, they've made murder legal in Baltimore. And it made me think about all these cases, right? Like big cases, you know, the Idaho Four, the four college students at the University of Idaho who were who were killed, even the Delphi murders, cases I care about, all of them get attention, even things like the, you know, certain serial killer cases. But in Baltimore, in a given year, triple, quadruple, 10 times, 20 times, um, that number of people end up dying and never, never getting covered. So, you know, you're a Marietta guy who is living in Atlanta. How do you end up in Walker Walker County, Georgia? And how do you end up getting the trust of the people who kind of already felt like they were they were being ignored? I think, you know, it it was me. I reached out to Amanda and I you know, I, and I'm sure she once again she's she was very adamant about getting DJ's story out. And it was a point of me building trust with her and showing her that, that I was here to tell his full story, that I wasn't going to just let it be a small little, you know, blurb in a podcast that, that I wanted to be able to 
to start at the beginning of his story and follow it through to the end. And each week show everybody the things that she knew, the things that she saw, the things that she had to deal with and let them see where the misjustice was. And, you know, the first thing she told me was she, she, she gave me her blessing and said, look, do what you need to do. She said, because if you have one person that listens to your podcast, that's one more person that would, will know about DJ's story. And that's possibly one more person that won't have the same situation. Mm. And so for her, it was as much about helping resolve her brother's case, or it was about as much a, it was as much about helping other people as it was solving her brother's case. Yes, and, and she's she's cha- you know she's turned into a very big advocate for other people in the same type situations, and. And she helps as much as she can. She gives, you know, she, she shows the path that she took and it's crazy because when you look at other people's stories and other people's situations, they, and I don't want to say they give up, but they get beat down. You know, they, they can look at something and they can only fight it for so long and they just, you know, they get exhausted and they just can't do it anymore. She did it for seven years and, and because of her pushing so hard, that's why, you know, there was a, there was, you know, a charge basically brought against this person and, you know, he's, he's awaiting trial now and, you know, and had she not pushed so hard, it would have just been another one of those stories that was just a quick blurb in the news and, and moved on. I know in my mental health work, when I've dealt with suicide, you know, it's a very common thing, right? There's cognitive dissonance when somebody, you you know, and there's, you know, when I was, when I was working at the New York Times, there were two people who were there, if you can believe this, two reporters who committed suicide. One, uh, a guy named Alan Meyerson was very clearly despondent in the days before and the 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 morning of and he ended up throwing himself off the side of the times building and at first we all thought like oh is it work or is it something that happened here and we ultimately found out it was it was more about things happening in his personal life and then very early on in my career there was another reporter so so with alan it was very obvious something was going on with this other reporter he had gone off to mental hospital had gotten out on, um, you know, like, uh, where he was, it was almost like he was furloughed out with his family a couple times and he seemed so happy and so positive and he ended up killing himself. And then those moments, right. Where a loved one is doing And in his particular case, I'm personally convinced that he was so happy because he was at peace with the decision he had made but one of the things about suicide is that people can show up happy, sad, distressed, anxious before they do it. And so I think in those cases sometimes where where people do seem happy, families have a tendency to believe that it wasn't suicide. What tipped Amanda off and how was she able to convince some people that this wasn't a suicide. 
so really from the beginning, you know, they, they were getting text from DJ up until, you know, five minutes before he was murdered from DJ saying, Hey, I need to get out of here. This is not a good situation. Can somebody come get me? And so that was part of it. But the second part was that, you know, his wife was there when it happened. And when the police were there, she was obviously distraught, you know, because she had just witnessed her husband getting shot. And they, you know, they they waited till the next day. Her aunt picked her up. And once that happened, she told them what happened. So at that point in time, they knew that it was not a suicide. Mm-hmm. The The suicide narrative in that situation came from from Marshall, who, who was the person that, that, you know, is, is about to stand trial for, for the murder. He, he set that narrative in motion when he called 911. He, he made sure to say it a number of times during the 911 call. He made sure he, if you, you know, when, when I was going through the police reports and reading all the statements that he made and things like that, that was, you know, he, he made sure to push that suicide narrative so much at that, you know, he was just trying to push it to where they believed it. And even the police, if it wouldn't have been for the coroner and the GBI medical examiner not communicating with anybody after the moments that were they were on scene, it would have been treated right away as a homicide. Mm. Um, so the police themselves in this example were suspicious. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, if you, when you go through the timeline and you see what happened, he, the the police officer did a great job. Actually. The problem was, is the people that were there before the detective took the case over ran with a narrative that the person that pulled the trigger gave. Mm. And so they, you know, basically being Walker County, it's a small little town. They don't have a medical examiner. So when something like that happens, the GBI takes it over. So when the coroner took the body to the GBI, he told them, hey, this is a you know sus- suspected suicide. And at that point in time, that's how that medical examiner from the GBI, which was she'd only been there for six months. She just, you know, she'd only had the job for six months. This was really one of her first, you know, five or six cases. And that's what she went with. She went with the notes that came with the body. And that's how she ruled it. And then she basically dug her heels in and said, I'm not changing it because this is my ruling. And Walker, isn't Walker County, it's Northwest Georgia, near just Chattanooga? Of, yep, yeah. yep, just outside of Chattanooga, yep. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like that four corners or three corners area, that Chattanooga, Alabama, um, Georgia corner right there. Okay, okay. So – you know, it's a small, it's a rural area. The officers on the scene hear, you know, a suicide narrative. I imagine the person on the 911 call was also probably getting some version of a suicide narrative too. I think. Yes. And all of these things are sort of like in the beginning, beginning conspiring toward the suicide story, but the the detective gets there. And part of the reason why, to me, this is kind of, an interesting piece of it is when these cases go wrong, you know, if you hit Reddit or you go to the message boards and, you know, you have a case like 
the Delphi murders, which, you know, happened. Abby Williams and Libby German were killed in 2017. Uh, the, the guy who's accused was arrested in the end of 2022. And it was all because a tip that was missing in the fall, uh, yep. a file from the beginning. We default to the police messed it up. we we default to the investigator screwed it up so that isn't exactly what happened in this case right no no not at all and that you know that was one of the funny things when when i was on with alice and brett that was one of the questions that they asked they're like well so when did the narrative change and it didn't that this narrative you know the narrative happened within weeks of of the incident so, you know, by it, everything happened the first part of October and by Christmas, they were looking, you know, they had, they had interviewed this guy three or four different times. They put all this stuff together. They, you know, all of the lie detector tests, everything, everything that that's in my recordings from, from the start to, to the point of, and I have to be careful what I say because there is a gag order. So mm. I have to. I have to, I still have to watch what I say. So um, I try to catch myself at times. Um, All of this information was in those files from the very beginning. There, there was nothing that changed the, the DA that was there at the time chose not to pursue it. Mm. And it, and it all goes back to the narrative from the beginning, the narrative that the house that, that they went to the trailer that they went to, was a known drug house. It was, you know, there'd been, I, I, I'm almost positive. I think since that incident there, there were 23 arrests at that house oh, before, wow. before that incident, there was, I think 15 that I could find that were documented. And these were, you know, drug allegations, fights, whatever, you know, just all through the gamut of, of different things that happened at that house. Who so, owned the Who owned the house? Was it an um, abandoned house or what no? It was it was a trailer that was all. It was I think it was a rented trailer. I don't know that they mm-hmm. ever owned it. So the person that owned it was there when the from the beginning of the story. There was only supposed to be three people there. It was supposed to be DJ Marshall and Brandy, who's DJ's wife. That was supposed to be and and from the nine one one call on. That was the narrative in the beginning. But as you go through, you end up finding out there were probably seven to 10 people at the house when the incident happened. Yeah. So, so, you know, these, these things came to light over those next few weeks. And, um, but I, I really believe that because it was a known drug house and the narrative came across the 911 call as a suicide, that's how they looked at it. And they wanted it. They just wanted it to get it, go away. And that was the DA, the coroner, and, the and actually the the, the sheriff, uh, okay. the GBI, the GBI, not so much. The sheriff, the sheriff there, I you know I am not going to say a lot because it it is what it is. But he's never reached out to the family even mm. after this the arrest that was made. He still never reached out to them. Um, oh wow! Yeah, it, it, it was. Um, is there bad it, blood because of the advocacy? Because I know sometimes, you know, there are some people who are in positions of authority and like, we all make mistakes, right? We all do things wrong. We make wrong calls, but they, they struggle when someone pushes against them and it turns out they're right. 
or I, I think that's exactly I think that's exactly what it was. He he was standing behind what the first couple people that were on scene said and didn't wanna didn't wanna rock the boat. And his his way not to rock the boat is to say, you know, this is a non issue. Mm-hmm. And he even made a statement when, so the only statement that I could find by the sheriff was when they changed the death certificate from suicide to undetermined. And his comment was, this doesn't do anything to help the case. All it does is muddy the waters even more. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, so you have some, it sounds like you've got some investigators who are like, you know, they're obviously doing a polygraph. They're always obviously interviewing this time they're like there is something wrong with this case something happened here they've got the wife who's it sounds like a witness to it telling them hey you know like here's what i saw here's what i think happened but it sounds like between the da maybe thinking uh the suicide narrative drug house reasonable doubt risk the sheriff himself not being engaged in it. And then the coroner's report sort of conspire for, for what maybe some of the investigators and for his sister was an obvious murder turning into a kind of lost case. Is that, is that a fair? That's exactly. Yeah, that's actually, actually exactly. Um, If you look at everything, it was just that kind of perfect storm that in a normal circumstance, it would probably still be ruled a suicide and closed. Oh, wow. So it really comes down to Amanda's advocacy. And it makes me think of something, too, because you you started out, you named the podcast The Broken System before you even found the case. So you kind of knew what it sounds like, the type of stories you wanted to cover. Why those stories? What was it about those stories that drew you? It goes back to that podcast I was listening to, you know, a year and a half ago that that just seemed to push a narrative that he wanted to be pushed. And what came to light to me is is that because of someone's situation, the police make a determination from the very beginning. And that's kind of how they stick with that determination. So Someone calls 911 and says, my daughter's missing. And the police say, how old is she? And they say, she's, you know, 23. Well, she's an adult. There's nothing we can do about it. Or she's 16. She just ran away. She ran away. Exactly. And and depending on how much money the person, and and I, I hate to say it that way. It doesn't matter to me. It's not about color. It's not about, it's not about anything other than money. When the person has enough money to to get themselves out there and push their narrative the how they need it heard, that's how that's how their stories get out there. And you know, I hate to say it, but there's there's stories like what is it, Gabby Petito? Um, you know, mm-hmm. different stories like that that get so much news and so much. Not That's that she the didn't woman deserve. who was they they accused her boyfriend of killing her. She was out in Utah. Utah, that, yes, yeah. exactly. And and but there was so much coverage in her case that they ended up finding, I believe, five or six other 
deceased people while they were searching for her. Wow. So when when you look at that kind of situation, you say, imagine had they put that much effort into those six other people. People, yeah. While, you know, from the beginning. And, and what was it about Gabby Petito's case in your mind that caused it to get so much attention? Her, her family, the, 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 her family had money and, and I don't want to say they had money. I, let me, let me rephrase that. Her family had the means to push and get that story out to where it w- it became a national story. And it, it's almost back to what was it? Carly Russell from a few weeks ago, a few months ago. From you know the the toddler on the side of the one. the toddler oh. on the side of the interstate, you know, yeah, the got, woman who stopped her car on the side yeah. of that Alabama road and said she saw a toddler and right, yeah, and it ended yeah. up being it ended up being all you know a made up story, but it's same thing. It's it's it became a national story because because there there were people pushing so hard for it. When you get into an area that that doesn't have that ability, when you get into a Walker County to, you know, these smaller towns in Alabama, the smaller towns in Tennessee that don't have the news coverage that a Birmingham does, that, you know, an Orlando, Florida does, that a New York does, that doesn't have those types of stations, that those stories never get out. You know, they're going to run, they're going to run on the news. It's going to be a, you know, a, a local if it, it because it's so far out there, it, the chance of it making it into a Chattanooga news or to an Atlanta news is, is slim to none. If it does, it's usually a one liner, and that's yeah. it. So uh, one of the things this, uh, you know, I, I definitely don't disagree with you on that point about sort of proximity to media connections, money. But I remember when I was in New York. Um, I covered the police department and I was one of the reporters who covered um, from police headquarters at one police plaza in, in Manhattan. And I also, in addition to sort of like covering regular crime, I was the reporter who covered like the department itself, its internal stuff. So I became really close with the deputy uh, police commissioner for public information And, you know, she used to tell me all the time, like, you are out of your mind if you think that a city councilman's phone call doesn't change the resources on a case or whether they're in the Upper East Side or whether it's somebody who could go to court or call the DA, like all of that affects it. What power people have, whether that comes from money or who they know or other things. And that was like, for me, that like sitting there talking to somebody like she had been a former U S marshal. I knew she cared about justice and cared and listening to her talk about that was almost like sad for me because it was almost like this resignation, even within the department that we're, we're not going to treat everyone fairly. We're not going to treat everybody the same all these things that we get up and the mayor says he doesn't discriminate based on, we're totally going to do that when the rubber meets the road on crime. And I don't, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but like being a police reporter, one of the interesting things about it, when you're on the night shift, they don't put the yellow lines as far back. So you can actually go on the scenes with the, 
with the detectives and there was this phrase and because you know we were on the police scanners and at headquarters we'd often know that a crime was happening or not a crime was happening that there was a homicide uh, at the same time the detectives did and on occasion we could beat them out there before the detectives rolled and more than one occasion uh, the detectives roll onto the scene and they say this phrase nih which means i found out no human involved right and they were mm-hmm. referring inevitably to drug addicts sex workers um you know and it's kind people of that, people that, they didn't feel like was worth their time right 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 and it it kind of runs contrary to sort of like everything you know like my natural instinct in life and as a reporter is you know, I don't I don't really care whether that guy just shot 16 people last week. I want to know how he ended up dead. I don't care whether that's a sex worker or drug addict or or whoever. You know, to me human life is super precious, right? Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sad that we live in that reality because you know, I think another factor is just what neighborhood you're in. Right. What um, do you live in a trailer? Or do you live in a mansion to you? Oh, and yeah. I mean, it, they're going to respond differently. You know, the, the for DJ's case, they they responded to the scene. And basically released the scene within a few hours. Get, oh, wow. Told, you know, told everybody, oh, you can go back in and do whatever you need to do. Oh, um, wow. And and that's what happened. You know, they went in, they pulled the couch that, that it happened on out, burnt the couch, cleaned up, you know, there, you know, there was no, really? there was no, yeah. Within, within, you know, five or six hours of, of the, their version of a suicide, it was, the scene was turned back over. Everybody stayed in the trailer that night. Hmm. Could you tell us, and I know you're, you're dealing with gag order stuff, so feel free to dodge around yep. this. Um, can you tell us this sort of story that Amanda originally told you about what she thought happened? So she, from, from the beginning, she told me, you know, there, there were more people in the house. There were everything leading up to it, all the arguments, all the fights, all the disagreements that DJ and um, Marshall had. She, you know, she basically laid all of this out. The text messages that that were received by his mom the night, you know, that the day that everything happened, and you know, within minutes, you know, of of what the final the, text. What did those texts say? What did his text say? Basically, it was him texting his mom saying, "I need, you know, I need to come stay with you. I need to get out of this environment. This, you know, if I'm if I stay here, I'm going to end up dead." Mm-hmm. And, and that's pretty much what it comes down to, you know, saying that he feels threatened, that he feels he doesn't feel safe and that that he needed to, to get out of that environment because it, it, as long as he was going to be there, he was going to end up dead. And then within five minutes of the of the last text is when he was shot. Well, that's so interesting, because to me, I'm curious, like when the police found out about those texts, because that's a bit of a telltale sign for me, not not necessarily not even so much the part where it's like he's foreshadowing his murder, which is like a big tip off, but sending a message like that to your parents suggests you have hope, right? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you know, they knew about those texts that night. The, you know, you can hear it on, um, on the interview on the body cam where Mark, so the person that shot DJ, DJ was using his phone to text his mom. So he let the detective read those texts that night, but he, he turned it into the, I'm going to end up dead because of suicide. Mm. Not that he was, not that he was afraid of something happening. He, he kind of tried to talk himself through that of, oh, he wasn't scared of anything happening here. He was scared of himself that he needed to be, you know, away from here. What was what was DJ like as a as a person? Did he grow up in Walker County? Did he, you know? he between he he grew up in Alabama? They're they're from actually a small town in Alabama. Um, so, but it's real. You know, it's within forty minutes of of that area. So, mm-hmm. what would happen is is that that's where they knew to where the drugs were coming from. So that's where they would go. Ah. Uh, uh, so he was really his family was in Alabama. He was in. Walker County himself. So he, he went to school and grew up in Alabama with his sister and his family. Did he have yes. sort of like hopes or dreams or, or things like that? I know he was married. Yeah. And, and so that all, it all changed fairly quickly for him. He, because she got pregnant when, when his wife got pregnant, that kind of changed everything. And his, his mind went from hopes and dreams to making uh, sure to take care of his family. Mm-hmm. And she had an addiction and he, he absolutely, when you, when you hear the things and you hear people talk about how he felt about her, he loved her and he would do anything for her. And he kept putting himself back in the situation, trying to get her out of the situation. Ah, uh, so he was, he was trying to rescue her. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But, he, but in doing that, you know, he would be around it. He would end up, you know, and, and drugs and addiction is tough enough to when you're trying to fight it on your own. And then you get around trying to help someone else and you, you know, you end up peer pressure, things happen. And, you know, it, it just, you, you fall back into bad habits when that happens. And that's oh, what happened. I absolutely get it. When I am um, at one point in my life, when I was sort of like deep in the mix of, Drugs, you know, it starts out as like you buy drugs, then you're hanging out with people who are buying the drugs, then you're hanging out with people who are selling the drugs, and then all of a sudden, all of you have entree into a house. And, and you know, it's funny because I, along with other people, would find ourselves, we'd find ourselves like pulling ourselves out, but there would be somebody who is still in the middle of it that we cared about. You know, yep. so we'd come by and talk to them. We'd hang out and ev- inevitably it would lead to a relapse and it would lead to, and it was just like this sad thing to watch compassion, just suck you back in and suck. I think people do not understand really the complexities of addiction. Like most addicts I've met in my life are like nice and good people. And I think part of the reason why some people are at risk for addiction is because they are sensitive people and it's a very painful, difficult world. And, um, and I think people just have a lot of misconceptions about 
that and those bleed into how we make decisions because we look at it as like, oh, there's something wrong with that person's character and they're not worthy. Some of the most loving people I've met, you know, it's going to sound weird, are the people who I met who are drug addicts. Oh, no, I, I understand what you mean exactly. It, 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 you know, everybody has a coping mechanism. And yeah. whether, whether that coping mechanism is a loving family that you can come home to and sit down and talk through your problems with, or alcohol, drugs, hard drugs, light drugs, whatever it may be, you know, th- there's mechanisms that people utilize to try to cope with things. And unfortunately, drugs and alcohol and, and that type of coping mechanisms end up destroying you because you, you can't continue to keep up the, the ability to cope. It, it takes more and more to continue to be able to cope with what you're dealing with. So my therapist said, actually, perfectly, you nailed it. You know, <laughs> everybody has a coping mechanism. The only problem with drugs as your coping mechanism is they're a really excellent coping mechanism that will kill you. So let's go pick one that's not going to kill you. Right. You've, you've got to figure you, you've got to figure out the, the least of the the worst uh, actions. It reminds me of a funny story. So I, I went into after the time scandal, I went into a psychiatric hospital up in um, New Canaan, Connecticut. And I, I went in and my parents came up from Virginia to Connecticut to, to take me there. And we get in and, you know, this is back in the good old days where people were allowed to like smoke in psychiatric hospitals. I don't know if they still can, but, and, you know, I, I was like on the bubble about whether my parents should bring me a carton of cigarettes and they would keep them in the nurse's station and they would dole them, dole them out. And you could go out onto this deck that they had and you could smoke. And so I changed my mind right as my parents were uh, uh, walking out and I was like, go ahead and pick me up a carton of cigarettes. And my mom was like, she said, that's really going to be unhealthy for you. I'm not sure you should be doing this while you're trying to, you know, uh, get better. And the psych tech turned to her. So that's the psychiatric technician. And he said, let's go with the one that's going to kill him faster. (laughs) 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 So she bought the (laughs) carton of cigarettes. Right. Oh, and, um, but, but yeah, yeah, I think it's a, in life and I think probably you and I both like can relate to this idea that we all have a bunch of coping mechanisms. Some are less healthy, some are more healthy, some affect no one, some affect others. And I don't think it makes sense to live in a world where we just look down on people for certain coping mechanisms. Instead, I think we should be, you know, for me, whether it's like sex addiction or it's drug addiction or it's whatever, it's not all that different than the person across the street's addiction to chocolate in the sense, in in terms from the perspective of addiction, the implications for them and other people may be different. But if I can have that compassion for the lady across the street who's trying to stop eating sugar, I should be able to have it for the guy who's trying to, you know, stop watching pornography or, or smoking crack. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing is, is I think, I think each individual person needs to stop and take a step back and think of it as 
okay, I'm not any better than they are. How can I help, you know, and figure out what they can do better and, and whether it's for themselves or for somebody else is, is just to be able to help somebody to pick them up and to help them move forward. Right. You know, whether it's getting them off of drugs, whether it's getting them away from a situation that it they don't need to be in. And, and those are sometimes the hardest things is, is when you know somebody and you care about somebody that's putting themselves in a bad situation that you try to involve yourself and it ends up causing you to be pushed away from that person further mm. because you involved yourself. And people don't do it because of that reason. I think they're afraid. They would rather have somebody that's a shell of themselves than losing that person altogether. Mm. Never even thought of it. I never even thought of it that way. The the idea that like to go in and try and help somebody before they're ready only increases the likelihood of of really separation from them, and that there's a lot of fear connected to that. One of the things you mentioned was how important Amanda, it's Amanda Shirley, right? Amanda. Yes. Yep. How, how important Amanda was to the case. What, what in your mind happens to the people who don't have an Amanda or their Amanda becomes so tired or it becomes so heavy? Like what happens in, in those cases? They get forgotten about. They get th- those are the ones that never that never are changed from suicide to undetermined. Those are the ones that never go back and look at the the situation and and somebody is walking free for killing somebody. You know, there's a murder that happened. You know, even when 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 the police know that it was a murder, but they don't pursue it because of the person's socioeconomics or because of their background or because of what they did last month or, you know, however they look at it, those people get forgotten. And that's where our system's broken because everybody should be able to get the same vigor and response and push from it. I get calls or I get messages quite a bit from, from people that are in situations that are similar to Amanda's, but it, it's hard for me because I go through them and, and, and it's unfortunate when I look at them, I'm like, you know, I understand that you, you don't think that this was the case, but it really points to that. That's, you know, that that's, that's what happened. And I have to distance myself from that. And, but there are just as many that are reaching out to me that are, are so much more and, and are in the same situation that Amanda's in, but they just don't have the, I don't want, Amanda's got drive. She's amazing. I, you know, and I tell almost like we need an army of Amanda's. Yes, absolutely. If you had an army of Amanda's, you would, you would have so many people that were getting justice for their loved ones because there, there's just so much tenacity and so much not wanting to give up. And, you know, I asked her how, you know, how she said she just made it her life. You know, she said she told her mom, you know, that I'm not going to let this go, that, you know, how I am, you know, that I'm going to push this until we get justice. And that's what she did. And, and what, what advice do, does she give people? Because I imagine she has people come to her. I, I think she tells them not to give up, that, that there's always, and I think 
I think because of her situation, it's even it's even more so going to be a better story once all of this is handled and done, because she's going to be able to say, look, I started this seven years ago or however long it takes to get to court, you know, to finally go to trial. I started this seven years ago and I pushed and I didn't let it go. And because I didn't let it go, I got justice. So these are the things that these are the steps that you need to take. And these are the, you know, this is how I advocated for DJ. This is how you need to advocate for your family. Yeah. Cause in that moment for them, it, they probably feel like they're in such a terminally unique situation that to be able to see somebody who has walked in their shoes, walked a mile in their shoes and come out or 10 miles or seven miles or however, however the metaphor should go, the situation would be so, so powerful. I even, so just recently, I think it may have even been today, I was reading um, this post on Twitter and in in the post, it was about an article that appeared in the Long Island newspaper Newsday, and it was the police commissioner Rodney Harrison, a former NYPD guy, who uh, was in charge of uh, investigating the Long Island serial killer case, and they just arrested a man for the, um, you know, the uh, what they call the Gilgo Beach. Four, and he had said that when he came on a few years ago, they only had one investigator assigned to the case, and it wasn't his only case. So you've got, you know, I forget what the number is, 10, 11 plus bodies found on this beach, and only one investigator. We don't even know if it's one killer. And there was a lot of outrage about it, and I found it really interesting to hear how outraged and people saying that, you know, this makes no sense. And I thought to myself, no, this makes perfect sense in understanding the incentives. And I'm not saying that this is something about the police, but the incentives that law enforcement are given by politicians, you know, we used to say in the newspaper that like you would see these blurbs, like it would say one American three British people and 500 Indians died in a boat, you know, that, that right. went down that, that the 11, you know, one Natalie Holloway, pretty white girl who's 17 years old and blonde and is attractive equals what? 11 sex workers. No, maybe a hundred, you know, and it, it's just, it, it was just interesting for me to see that post because it just reminded me of how, and I really think this comes down to our own cognitive bias, like our belief that we are not a part of this problem, right? <laughs> that we're not as the citizens, the ones who are giving the politicians these incentives, but that people just don't understand or can't accept that this is the way the system works. Is that, is that fair? No, it, it's absolutely. I think, I think that's exactly it. And, and it comes back to people living, and I don't mean it in a bad way, but people live in a bubble. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to know about anything that's not inside their bubble. And, and typical, a sex worker isn't inside their bubble. A 17-year-old high school girl that's on her high school trip 
is inside their bubble because it could be anybody. You know, the Native American girl out in the reservation that disappears isn't. Right, exactly. And that it it makes it hard. Like I, you know, I once got kicked off a a Reddit forum for this because it was actually related to the Idaho Idaho four case. And I don't know what started the conversation, but I made this comment. I've, I've worked my way back in, but I made this comment where I was like, look, all, all the research shows that we care about this case because these are four white, attractive college students and people jumped on me. Um, but I think that part in me, and I'm not, not getting, I'm not preaching here or getting on a high horse because I'm part of this problem too. But I think we incentivize as the citizens, we send the message to people about what we value and they take that cue from us. But is there something like that we can do in terms of paying attention to these other cases? I think it, it it's getting people to be able to tell the story that takes out that narrative portion. It doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to be about black, white, college, not college, sex worker, not sex worker. It needs to be about death. It needs to be about the person's life and, and that they're human. That they're human. That's, it, you know, that, that once again, it goes back to, Everybody is one step away from, no matter what anybody thinks, everybody is one step away from making a mistake. Right. Whether that mistake is a small one or a big one, but they're one step away from it. Yeah. And I think sometimes the small one can have huge consequences. It's not. Yeah. And I think people, they have this habit of believing that like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be presented with this big choice. And if I make the wrong choice, bad things going to happen to me. Now, some, usually it's a slippery slope. It's like one small choice builds to another small choice and you end up off course. So in thinking about sort of like the system itself and, you know, where, where, where it other places that it might break. Cause you know, we talked about the case of, um, the Delphi murders, Abby and Libby. Um, there, there are other cases, even people who do fit that mold of the, you know, uh, of, of what we would naturally and normally follow. But those cases, even those cases can break too. Do, are there other areas that we should pay attention to in your mind or other things that we need to reform when it comes to our approach to justice, and I mean the whole system, not just police themselves, but I think it's going back to giving everybody a voice. I, you know, I think for at one point in time in history, I think people had a voice, and being able to take that voice and and knowing that you're going to be heard, that's been taken away from a lot of people, and because we don't give everybody a voice. It it makes it impossible for everybody to get the same justice. Does that make sense? I don't. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, I I think you know the more you know one of the things that I, I think about sometimes, like you know, an anthropologist will tell you that like part of the reason why we're able to survive on this planet is because 
we're tribal, you know, because inherently we're able to fit, uh, make groups, right? Teams, whether those are families or clans or, or larger groups, that's how we compete for resources. That's how we do things. But that tribalism, you know, that point that you were making before about like people don't look like us or they are not in our circle or they're not in a bubble. I think that tribalism, particularly when power is concentrated in certain tribes, can can allow at the very least da- the dampening of of um, of other voices. And it sounds like also from your story, part of it is not just about voice, but it's about listening. Because like when I think of that sheriff or the DA. Some of this is about us kind of like letting our pride, our ego, our fears about losing cases, kind of like letting go of that and just listening. Yep. And so one of the big turning points for DJ's story with Amanda was that Amanda was, she was very active on Twitter and she would she would tag the GBI. She would tag the head of the GBI. And <laughs> she, she would do, she would do a lot of things that would, you know, make some people, you know, just kind of, um, get under their skin. A woman and, after my own heart. Well, <laughs> and, and, and so the, one of the people at the GBI ended up blocking her on Twitter. Oh, and that's a no, no. Yep. Because public official. official. Yes. So once she, once she found, once she got other people involved in that, that person retracted that block and said, Hey, that was a mistake. I didn't mean to do that, but Hey, why don't you come in and talk to us about this situation? Oh, really? Yes. That's how the invite came. Yep. And it, and, and so she went into the GBI and, and spoke to them and that's how they ended up with getting the death certificate change from suicide to undetermined. Because because she got blocked on Twitter. Wow. Wow. And so she was just pushing and pushing. So, you know, one of the interesting things about all of this, Robert, the point being, you know, you aren't a former detective and you're not a journalist. Like, what is it in your life, like for you, that got you to the point where where these kinds of things matter? It for me, it it so I started doing it as, as something for me to help, help with my mental health, to help me just cope with just being able to sit down and talk through a podcast, to be able to do the research and do, do put it all into a verbal form helps me throughout the day. I'm a, how do, I guess I, I'm an extroverted introvert, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I, I, so when I'm in public and I'm talking to a group, I can talk to 100 people. I can talk to 500 people, no problem. But the moment I step out of that group, I turn back into myself and, mm. and I, I internalize everything. Mm. And it, it, it's almost to the point, and, and it's kind of what's affected me in my personal life. It's what's affected me just overall in general by doing that because once I turn into myself, I don't realize and I don't think about how, how I affect other people. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Your impact so, on, yeah, I'm, I'm it, the other way around, by the way, I am a 
introverted extrovert. So I kind of live in my own head, which is dangerous. Hence why the books and other things along that way. I I used to have a friend who would tell me she was in AA with me. She said, Jason, if you're going to go alone in your head, go with a flashlight and a gun. Otherwise bring (laughs) a friend. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you can put me on a stage and a lot of people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm alone. I am my own deadliest enemy. Yep, absolutely. So this, they gave me an outlet and, and DJ's case just tugged on me. It, it really hit me in the heart and it really, it really pressured me to put his story out there and to do it the right way, to do it in a way that didn't, one, I tried to not put it in a way that I didn't put anything out there that wasn't the truth. I didn't put anything out there that wasn't already out there that wasn't already known. And, but I also did it in a way to respect the family, to respect the police, to respect um, the legal system and to make sure that everyone that it was involved in that story had a voice and, and being able to give that voice. and, And that's important to me, especially when, once again, Amanda, when Amanda told me, it doesn't matter to me. I want you to put his story out there. If one person hears it, that's one more person that would that can either benefit from it or one more person that would have never known about it. Are there moments for you in your life where you feel like you didn't have a voice? Yes, a lot of times. I and and the problem and, and it goes back to it goes back to honestly back to my childhood and and things like that. I at times I have a, I guess I, I hate to say it like this, but um, some of the things that I've learned is I have abandonment issues and right. not that my parents weren't wonderful, great parents, but they were a lot older when I was mm-hmm. born mm-hmm. and I was expected to be on my own from an early mm-hmm. age. So, you know, at seven years old, I'm at home, you know, taking care of myself, um, you know, cooking breakfast, spending the day at home, you know, that type of thing, you know, being, you know, where, where, as I, you know, you the way the count fast. Exactly. You know, I, I had a job at 11 years old oh, and wow. school became a, and not because my parents, not because I had to work, but I got to the point that I was so self-sufficient on myself that I felt like I needed to work. So I didn't have to burden anybody else with it. Mm. And that's kind of, that's kind of dictated my whole life. And with that, I felt like I never, because I was at home alone, a lot of times I didn't have that voice. I wasn't able to, to tell people, this is how I feel. This is the things that are bothering me. This is the things that I need for me to be healthy. And I just internalize those things. So Mm. I feel like being able to do this and being able to get DJ story out there also helps me externalize my issues. Yeah, you're giving back. You're giving people the voice that at different moments in in your life you felt like you didn't have. That's so powerful. Like one of the most powerful things in life is to allow your pain to turn into something or do the work to let your pain turn into something good for other people. Do you, you know, it's so powerful and it so fits and it so makes sense to me, by the way why you 
and it makes me believe in the universe and its power. <laughs> you in this story <laughs> ran into, collided into each other. It sounds like it's been very healthy for them, healthy for Amanda, healthy for you, healthy for the justice system. So how do we top this? What's next? <laughs> it's tough because, you know, I, I kind of hit a wall when one, once the gag order was put in place, I have three episodes that are sitting for DJ's story to finish it out. And, oh, wow. and when I say finish it out, I, I wanted to, I wanted to tell his whole story from start to finish. I wanted everybody to know what happened from the day, you know, or actually leading up to the situation, to the, to the murder up until, you know, I want to be able to go and I will go to court when it goes to court and I will sit there and I will, you know, I will come back and I'll give, you know, that final update as soon as those gag orders are released. Because what I want to be able to do is, is three years down the road, I want somebody to be able to come back to this podcast and say, wow, this person was able to do, you know, Amanda was able to do this for DJ. I can do this for my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister. Um, and maybe and, a model for us podcasters too, just the fact that you were able to do this, that like, cause I, you know, I think about it and someone asked me recently, like, why, why are you doing this? And you know, I didn't put it as articulately as you do, but I think I'm here because I want people to have, be able to have their voice. You know, I always say like, when I have an episode, I never know what story is going to be told because it's their story, not the story I'm trying to tell. And I think like just thinking about my own podcast, you're a good example for me and I'm sure for others. Well, I appreciate that. And it, it's, you know, as you say, for follow-up, it's hard because I want to make sure that the the message that I put out is, once again, a message that not only is for the individual, it's for, it's for someone listening to it to understand why that happened and maybe be that next person that fixes it to where it doesn't happen again. Um, I've got a couple episodes that I'm I'm getting ready to record over the weekend of a couple different cases. They're not quite as big. Mm-hmm. One of the things that and I say this and 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 I and I tell Amanda this as well. And had had DJ's case not been ruled a suicide from as early on as it was all the information that Amanda was able to get that she was able to pull from FOIAs and able to take in to show that what needed to happen with his case wouldn't have happened. Mm. So there, there's a number of cases that people have came to me and said, Hey, I really believe that my brother, my sister, my father, they did not commit suicide. I feel strongly about this. And I say, okay, send me all the information that you have and let me look over it. And, and, you know, they've got a, a page and a half of a police report and that's it. And there's nothing else to go with it. So they have no information to back up, you know, anything other than what, what, the what was said. So I say that it was fortunate for her that, that it did happen the way that it did because she was able to get that information and she was able to use it to fight for her brother. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, the, that's the biggest thing is, is, is making sure that you get as much information as you can and, and, and just push and push and push until you get it all. Yeah. And I think it comes back to what you said before, like you had a voice in this, Amanda had a voice in this and 
DJ got a voice in this and, you know, and, and luckily somebody at the GBI, you know, decided to listen. So kind of in thinking of it, you know, I wanted to give you a chance to say anything you wanted to say in closing. Um, you know, I, I'm so curious about, you know, like what, what might be a roadmap for, for people who are, let's say, I don't know, in law enforcement or the criminal justice system or victims advocates, or just like the average Joe who, you know, my tax dollars and my votes contribute to the system. Like what are the things that we should all be thinking about doing when it comes to these kinds of situations? Do you have any, any advice for us? For me, that advice is, is to take out the, I know a person's background has to be a part of the discussion, but it doesn't need to be the main part of the discussion. The, you know, it doesn't matter what they did yesterday. It doesn't matter what they, what they possibly could have done tomorrow. It's about what happened to them right then. I'll kind of give you just a little bit of one of the stories that I'm working on right now. A young man, Mm -hmm. he, he, he ended up, he got, he ended up dying. He was missing. They found his body. Um, it's a very long story, very crazy story about how his, how everything happened. And, and we'll, we'll hear that soon, but the, the police department put out their, you know, their statement as soon as the body was found. And the statement basically said, this person's name was found, you know, deceased. This person had a history of drug abuse and mental health issues. Oh, really? Wow. That's that's the statement that they that they put out there. Wow! So they were so deciding the case. In that it was moment. it was deci- it was decided before before the person was found. Yeah. Because of because of that, he, once again, it's you know a twenty five year old guy. Hey, he can go missing if he wants to. There's nothing. There's no. There's no law against him going missing. And and when you hear the story, you're going to be like, I can't believe this this that all of this stuff happened and how that it happened. But it maybe it, a maybe a message for law enforcement is listen to what's in front of you a little bit more, like exactly into the nuance. Yeah, just because just because it's it's just because of someone's history doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be treated with respect from the moment that something happens. Right. All right, Robert, looking forward to those new episodes. I really do appreciate this chance to like talk and I appreciate you being so open about everything because I think at the end of the day, I think that there's something so powerful to the idea of really just being able to give people voices and those voices don't matter because of your race, your gender, your socioeconomic status, giving all those people a voice is, is super important. And one of the things someone recently said to me was like, Jason, if you want to see those stories, if you want to see those stories of the people who don't fit that profile, you know, there are a handful of podcasts that are out there that do that. You're not going to see it on TV. And I'm really honored, you know, cause I consider you a friend whether you consider me a friend or not. Absolutely. No, <laughs> um, I'm really honored to be your friend. So 
I appreciate you doing this. I know it's not for the fame or the big bucks. I know it's because you're a good person. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you having me on. Like I said, I, I as I listen to your show, I'm like, I, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not in line with all of these people that he's had. I'm like, uh, so I'm honored to be here and I appreciate you giving me the time and a voice. This is Jason Blair and this is the Silver Linings Handbook. We'll see you all next week for our next episode.